Hello and welcome to the Itihasa podcast on Indian history. My name is Vijay Rao. Over here on the Itihasa podcast, we aim to demystify and humanize Indian history. Every show, we will be discussing a different topic from the wide expanse of Indian history. We want to understand a little better how people of the past thought about what was happening in their lives. Think of it almost like a different case study from history every show. Hopefully, the listener finds this fun, informative, and even valuable for understanding modern India. Welcome to the first episode of the Itihasa podcast. My name is Vijay Rao. On this episode, we will be discussing Tipu Sultan, the Third Anglo-Mysore War, and the Battle of Nandi Drug. The events we will discuss took place in the years of 1790 to 1792 and proved to be a significant turning point in the history of India, particularly the South. To discuss this topic with me is Siddharth Raja, a corporate lawyer by profession and an avid historian by passion. Siddharth is an old Bangalorean brought up in the city and is the director of Nandi Valley Walks, a heritage tour company based in the Nandi Hills, just outside Bangalore. Siddharth, welcome to the show. Welcome and thank you for having me over, uh, Vijay. Yeah, my pleasure. So Siddharth, I understand that through your work with uh, the Nandi Walks, the Nandi Valley Walks uh, company that you do a lot of uh, sort of tours around the Nandi Hills area. And one of the places that you are an expert on is the, uh, the sort of fort of Nandi Dhruk. And so we'll be discussing that today. But before we get any further, like I said in the intro, we are discussing uh, sort of the time frame of 1790 to 1792. So why don't you just give our listeners a sense of what actually was the ground reality in 1790, the background behind the various different players, who, what is Mysore state, who are its neighbors, et cetera. Can you just let us know what, we're, what really we're discussing here? Sure. Um, just to give you some historical context, actually. Um, the British had established a toehold uh, by the 1760s. Um, they had managed to secure Bengal in 1765 uh, after getting rid of the, the, the Nawab and um, had established not just their political, uh, not just their trading presence, but also a political presence. Now, in the South, the situation was a little more complicated, complicated by a couple of factors. One, a large presence of, uh, uh, of Indian rulers who were willing to stand up and fight, and also by the machinations of the French, um, their European rivals uh, in that period of time. So by the, the 1770s, um, the, the British uh, were trying to establish and secure a presence completely in the south of India. And so the events that we will now subsequently talk about has their historical basis in those in that in that in the twenty odd years leading up to 1790. Now the the kingdom of Mysore, uh, which until the early 1760s had a Hindu king, the Wadiyar king, had uh, the Wadiyars had been toppled in early 1760 by one of their generals, Hyder Ali, and uh, a Muslim kingdom had emerged, or at least a Muslim ruling class had emerged. And the British uh, were in constant battle with uh, Hyder for, uh, they were the first and the second Mysore wars. The first one proving, actually both of them proving fairly inconclusive. 
Now, Haider died very suddenly in 1781, and his son, Tipu, uh, came to assume the throne in Mysore. And uh, Tipu uh, uh, was a, a very different kind of uh, Indian king for a couple of reasons. One, he realized that uh, his enemy's enemy was his friend, and so he had established a good uh, rapport and link with the, with the French, and in fact had several French officers who were assisting him and his, uh, and his uh, uh, armies. Um, and uh, the second thing was that he was willing to take the fight effectively to the British. And so right through the early 1780s, you see Tipu suggesting that he would try and reach an amicable settlement with the British, while in fact, he was essentially arming himself for the coming battles. Um, you know, all of in history has interconnections and the connection with this part of India and this period of time has a very close connection with uh, world events. Um, the British had lost the American colonies in the latter part of the 1770s, and by the early 1780s had effectively had to uh, retreat from their American possessions. And so uh, India became a very important uh, staging post for them to ensure that they secured their dominance in world uh, politics. And um, it's not unsurprising, and we'll come to that in a minute, I guess, um, the players involved have some American connections. In fact, there's a, right through this entire um, the discussion, we will have uh, several American connections to deal with. So just to set the scene, by uh, the latter part of the 1780s, um, the South was fairly restive, and uh, Tipu, the French, and the British were jostling for power, along with the other two Indian rivals in, in the Deccan, the Maratha power, uh, just north of Mysore. And northeast of Mysore, you had the Nizam, the Nizam of Hyderabad, um, who, uh, you know, uh, in some cases allied, uh, allied themselves with the British. And so the British were looking for various different alliances between themselves and the Marathas on the one hand and themselves and the, the uh, Nizam on the other. And so you come to 1789 where you have this web of intrigue effectively taking place. A very interesting year because 1789 uh, is the year of the French Revolution. And as soon as the French Revolution breaks in the middle of 1789, the French kind of lose focus on India because they have troubles at home to deal with, and they need to ensure that the home front is taken care of. And so there is a, effectively a retreat by them in their engagement in India. And the British sense an opportunity, sense an opportunity to establish their power in the South and uh, you know, uh, really establish their dominance uh, in the region. So it's not unsurprising that the Third Anglo-Mysore War has its beginnings at, towards the end of 1789, matching almost uh, completely the fact that the French are no longer uh, involved actively in India. And, um, you know, I should probably just talk about the various personages who were involved. Yeah, in, in and uh, so I was just going to get to that, but I think one of the interesting things is when we discuss the personages and the institutions and the other people involved in this, one of the glaring omissions in this whole story is the French who were allies of Tipu's father in the previous two wars. That's right. uh, but it, because of the domestic situation within France, they are unable to play any role and the British kind of have an open hand to deal with their allies, Absolutely. the Marathas and the Nizam. Absolutely. In fact, as you rightly said, it's a, it's a vacuum that is created, to some extent a, a power vacuum as well as a political vacuum, which the British sense an opportunity to to get a toehold in, an opportunity that needs essentially the neutralizing of Tipu and the Mysore Kingdom. And so hence the British are, are aligned 
uh, allied with the Nizam and the Marathas. Uh, it must be said, an alliance that is uh, not the easiest of alliances. There's mutual distrust actually on both sides. And Cornwallis, the Governor General of India at that point in time, has written a fair amount of stuff that uh, suggests that he was only in bed, so to speak, with the Nizam and the Marathas only for political and strategic gains. And um, he was very wary and uh, concerned that they were doing things antithetical to the British interest, actually. And right through the Third Anglo-Mysore War, you have references as to how he felt that the Nizam and the Marathas were more interested in plunder and pillaging uh, the territories they had acquired rather than moving ahead and trying to uh, checkmate uh, Tipu. So let's actually get a little bit into that because you mentioned that we wanted to discuss the characters a little bit and you mentioned the name Cornwallis. So who is Cornwallis? What is he doing here? And what's his background and how is he, what, what brought him here? So Charles, the Earl Cornwallis, the, I think the second Earl Cornwallis, if I'm not mistaken, um, is effectively in India as governor general. He came here in 1784-85 as governor general of India, effectively on a punishment post. Because in 1781, uh, he had to sue for peace and actually surrender. Uh, to a combined force of the Americans and the French at the Battle of Yorktown. So it was a humiliation, which was a double humiliation. Not only did he have to surrender to the Americans, the, the colonists, but also to the French, and which is a huge uh, humiliation. And so he was sent to India, effectively, as I said, as a punishment post, um, uh, to, to do, and he had two things on his agenda, if you want to call it that. One, clearly uh, a redemption, that is to redeem his own uh, reputation, and also thirsting for revenge uh, in the sense that he wanted to clearly establish himself as a player and as a person of some reckoning. And so you have a very committed man um, who in 1786 introduces the famous permanent settlement for land reforms in, in Bengal, right? And sets the tone of what is in effect today's India's land policy, set all the way back in 1786 through Cornwallis's permanent settlement. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and... Uh, uh, but he's in the south, uh, based in uh, Fort St. George and in Madras, uh, now seeking to neutralize the French and all the southern Indian powers to ensure that the, that the British have uh, colonial domination. I, well, I say colonial domination is perhaps just too early a word to use. They were clearly wanting to secure trade links, but also realized that the only way they could secure it was to ensure that they had political control. And so this was all part of that effort. So Cornwallis is a man very committed uh, keen to redeem himself, who is at the head uh, of the British in India, the East India Company, the Honorable John Company, as it's called. And I understand in addition to just reputational redemption, there's also a good deal of money and cash oh, involved. Oh, absolutely. Okay. You know, India is, after all, the famed East. Uh, uh, there is the riches of India, um, you know, uh, not just the spice, but all the wealth and the minerals and all the gold and all the other precious stuff. So clearly, if he were to establish himself, redeem himself, and, you know, he would take back a huge pot of money uh, to, to, to England. Remember that just a few years before, uh, Clive, Robert Clive, mm -hmm. uh, as uh, Sashitrul has rightly said, we, we didn't give him the name Clive of India, the British gave him that name. <laughs> and, uh, but he, he, he effectively plundered India in order to make it India his own, rather, rather than him doing anything good for the Indians. But anyway, let's not get uh, di uh, distracted from the topic. So there is Cornwallis. And um, there is on his, directly opposite him, is Tipu. Right. Now, Tipu is this man who was, well, he's in his 30s, remember. Cornwallis is slightly older, perhaps in his early 40s by this time. Um, who is the proud son of a very, uh, uh, you know, 
of, of a father who you know he looked up to and clearly a man who sees himself um, as the protector of his domains as someone who wants to establish a local power now history can always look back and ask the question uh, whether he wanted to set up an indian power the concept of india as we know it today did not exist then but he was a man who wanted to be a sovereign within his own territory uh, and and uh, to be treated as a sovereign with his uh, neighbors and with the foreign or external powers and so it's not uh, he was perhaps the only man to send out emissaries both to the french court as well as to the ottoman court and we'll come back to the ottomans in a bit uh, to try and establish that he was an equal one on one um uh, vying with these powers right that the, you know to go to to the to the versailles and meet uh, i think it was king louis the 14th or maybe one of his 16th, successors yeah. 16th right so, sorry it before was king louis the 16th before they chopped his head off before they chopped his, his and his wife's head off yes that's right but it is a magnificent imperial court and to go out there and say i am coming to you from the east as an equal as a and king in my own right just to clarify he sent emissaries right? that's right he, he didn't go himself of course yes he sent emissaries uh, uh to to uh establish uh, what we would today call diplomatic relations right um but to to do it on an equal footing which is what diplomacy is all about so you had this man who was a very strong-willed uh, committed kind of leader again a man dedicated to his own territories undoubtedly but keen to promote the welfare of his people although history will now look back and say that he was also a bit of a marauder and a and 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 a and a raider and you know killed many people but a lot of them did that in those days i guess so you had tipu Cornwallis, and uh, ranged some of the other personages involved are, of course, the Nizam of Hyderabad. Mm -hmm. The Nizam of Hyderabad is an interesting character. Uh, he began life uh, effectively as a governor under the the Mughal kings, and as the Mughal empire empire disintegrated, uh, he, as a local governor, established the, the the line. The 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 Nizams of Hyderabad established themselves as sovereign in their own territories again. But uh, he was a person that was keen. to ensure two things uh, a that uh, he would be the greater muslim power than tipu right. um and uh, uh, and also therefore in order to do that would ally with the british because if tipu is allied with the french then it would be a good thing in uh, in in his view that he would be aligned with the with the british so as to be on clear sides in the battle that was uh, surely going to come soon uh the french themselves um are an interesting lot they as i said uh were were uh, supportive of uh, of tipu and had sent uh, troops as well as officers to help uh, modernize his army uh, and had fought alongside them and, and had fought alongside hyderali's army in the yeah. first two anglo-mysore right. wars but right? the defining element in the third anglo-mysore war vis-a-vis -vis the french is that they are actually in quite a bit of a disarray and that is primarily because of the home front right right and there is of which course which we've discussed already which yes. we've discussed already so those are broadly the powers there is the maratha power as well um and we will perhaps talk about a, a general by the name of parshuram bhau hmm. uh who was involved along with the british in the capture of mysore territory during the third anglo mysore war uh but the marathas uh, based with the peshwa in uh, in pune um are looking to expand their territory into south southern india and also i think playing a bit of a game of check and chessmate checkmate and chess if you want vis-a-vis -vis these two muslim powers right. let us not forget that the 
uh, Maratha power uh, was a Brahmin dominated Hindu power mm-hmm. and so um, given the the uh, the, the prevailing uh, theology or the theocracy that they were effectively it's not unsurprising that they perhaps looked at both Muslim powers with a little bit of uh, uh, suspicion um, and I think the alliance between the British and Marathas and the Nizam was really held together by the British it would never have been the case that the Nizam and the Marathas would have allied together in the fight against Tipu if the British or the French weren't around. So that's right. that's a good example of power politics, if you want to call it that, geopolitical uh, forces that we would today call is effectively that, that you have two people coming together, the Nizam and the Marathas to ally with the British, uh, which they would never have done if the British were not there. They were some kind of the glue. And it is the, the British are only seeking that alliance because the French, their mortal enemies for power in Europe, are aligned with the um, uh, with Tipu. So it strikes me that everybody here in this game is playing the game of my enemy's enemy is my friend. And so looking at it from, so the Maratha is saying, I'll ally with the Nizam and the British because they, they I, with them I can, we can sort of attack Tipu. And the British saying, I'll ally with the Marathas and the Nizam because I want to attack that the is French, etc. So that, that seems true. to be, uh, uh, this seems to be one of the common but themes But what here. dominates all of that is strategic interest, right? right? Uh, politics truly does not have permanent enemies or permanent friends. The only reason all these alliances are being struck is that there is a strategic material interest. The British have a material interest economically and politically, and each of these others have their own um, territorial uh, ambitions and their own power ambitions, and obviously strategic, because let's not also... I think we should give due credit to both the Marathas and the Nizam. It's not as if they were completely pliant uh, underlings to the British. They're also effectively an equal power at this point in time. They could well have overthrown the British themselves. Right. And so they're trying to see in this game of chess uh, which is the part party or the person who'd help them and where they could perhaps outflank it. And the thought may well have crossed their minds that they could have outflanked the British themselves. But, and uh, if I understand correctly, uh, especially prior to this, this uh, third uh, war, that there were also a lot of territorial gains that Mysore had made under Hyder Ali and Tipu Sultan against the, from the Nizam That's and That's a very good point. That is a very good point. Uh, You're absolutely and so, right. And so as a result, they saw this alliance with the British as a way of trying to get back some of the Perfect. districts that they had that is true. lost. The Marathas had lost the territory to Tipu. The Nizam had also lost territories to Tipu and Hyder. And in fact, as we will see, the Third Anglo-Mysore War, when these armies are involved in the battle against Tipu, their immediate interest is the recapture of these territories, not necessarily the same as the British interest, because they're not so worried about the British, that is. Right. But yes, that is that is absolutely correct. So that's the strategic view that the Marathas and the Nizams are, are taking. So, Siddharth, let's then get a sense of the of the actual soldiers involved. What are the armies like? The two the two sides. Who are who are the fighting forces? What kind of equipment do they have? What are the kind of officer corps like? What's happening with these two different? Ar- I mean, I guess you can say four armies, but we, let's primarily stick with the two main ones: the British Army that's coming out of both Madras and also Bengal and Bombay. And then, of course, Tipu's army that's based out of... That's true. I think just as a side point over there, the French, in terms of its military involvement in this third Anglo-Mysore war that we're going to talk about, was probably just restricted to officer corps that they had supplied and intelligence, if you want to call it that, or assistance on technical aspects to the the Mysore armies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because they were, as I said, trying to deal with the situation back home in France. The British Army, or I, I should actually say that's, that's, that's not a correct description. History is always about getting the right description. <laughs> it's really the, 
the East India Company Army or the Honorable John Company right. and their armies. Remember, as a company, as a corporation, they never had any army, right? So they had to raise an army or uh, uh, effectively a paramilitary force to help support them and to keep themselves safe while doing trade. And so the East India Company Army is largely local recruits. In other words, the British and the East India Company would raise different battalions of native soldiers, native along various caste or regional lines, and then equip the, the, these battalions or these, these, these various formations with English officers, right? And so you had uh, the formations of the first native infantry regiments, mm -hmm. and these are references to soldiers who were drawn largely from the districts of Bengal, Bombay, and the Madras, uh, what, is, what then became the Madras Presidency. So you would have a lot of Tamil, Telugu-speaking, or Bengal-speaking in, 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 if it came from Calcutta. Uh, uh, local Kada, they were all native troops, what we perhaps today would call non-commissioned officers. Right. right? And then uh, the Javans, and uh, the officers themselves would be uh, English, uh, uh, Englishmen, Actually, not just Englishmen, it must be said, a large number of Scotsmen and, and, and Irishmen because they were escaping poverty themselves and trying to make a quick buck in India as well, actually. Okay. So that's the composition of the, of the, of the armies uh, on the British side, largely Indian, but uh, led by generals such as Cornwallis and his buddies, uh, such as, for example, and we'll talk about this man, a guy called General Meadows, who was in Madras at the time, heading, of the, Madras, heading the Madras army. Um, Tipu's army is a classical you know, Indian formation. Uh, you had obviously a large number of foot soldiers, a large number of elephants, the use of, uh, of, uh, of um, cavalry. And as we will find that Tipu had started putting together what were called Kashun brigades. They're effectively brigades of rocket launchers. Okay. And he was developing his own indigenous rocket technology with assistance, it must be said, from the French. Uh, but uh, they were truly indigenous uh, rocket technology. And so there'd be a large component of Indian foot soldiers, cavalrymen, as well as infantrymen. And uh, under control, under sorry, under the command, um, typically of uh, Muslim uh, officers. But Tipu's army did have um, a fair number of uh, uh, hin uh, Hindu soldiers, as well as Hindu officers. So that's the kind of composition of the army itself. Now, of course, the British had a far superior uh, artillery uh, guns and uh, access to them at least and and um, uh, uh, you know I think in relative terms they may have been fairly equally matched but the French because they were withdrawing were giving less of this kind of hardware support if you want to call it that right. uh, to, to, to Tipu and his, and his men so that's broadly I would say the, the, the range of the armies okay so this is now we've set the scene it's 1790 and uh, it's been some time since the last war uh, that the uh, that has been fought between the two sides. Uh, and so now we come to Tipu Sultan decides that he wants to take an aggressive posture against the state, the Indian, the, the sort of state which is in modern-day Kerala of Travancore. Uh, and this seems to trigger the third Anglo-Mysore War. That's right. War. How, does that, how does that happen? So in late, I think, December 1789, early 1790, uh, Tipu uh, does attack the kingdom of Travancore from his ally, the kingdom of Cochin, and uh, actually is not very successful in the attack. And uh, Cornwallis has made it clear to his governor in Madras, this guy called Meadows, 
that uh, if Tipu were to attack Travancore, it would be treated as an act of war against the British. And because the British are allied with the Travancore Maharaja uh, on the basis that they would lend him support if he came under attack, the British would exercise that option and come to the aid of the Travancore king. Now, initially, when that attack is made by Tipu, Meadows tries to negotiate with, uh, with, uh, with Tipu, and that uh, uh, angers uh, Cornwallis, and his, who then actually ensures that the chain of command is activated, and Meadows then attacks Tipu uh, and starts effectively the Third Anglo-Mysore War. And it's a, it's a back-and-forth war in the initial one year or and so. And very quickly, attention is taken away from Travancore. That's the, right. The place where it all started, it's just suddenly it all comes back into the sort of heartland of the Mysore kingdom itself. That's right. right. Okay. Uh, combination. It's, there is uh, there is uh, obviously skirmishes that occur because um, uh, when when Meadows activates the campaign uh, as a result of the Travancore uh, events, the Marathas and the Nizams are also attacking Tipu from the north, and in fact the the Bombay army joins Maratha power to attack Tipu from the north, and uh, so attention is he has to switch some of his troops in order to protect himself. Uh, the British uh, capture uh, what is modern-day Coimbatore and the surrounding area is a place called Satyamangalam mm -hmm. and um, push Tipu back into Mysore, into the heartland of the Mysore territory. And that Mysore heartland is around the Kaveri uh, Basin, um, you know, Mysore itself and uh, Shurangapatna, or as the British called it, Seringapatam, uh, where Tipu is, uh, that's his capital. So the year 1790 sees a lot of back-and-forth battle the British are uh, attacking in some places. They are repulsed in some others. Um, the Marathas are pushed back in some others. Now, the Marathas, interestingly, in the north, decide to try and recover some of the territory that we spoke about that was lost to Haider and Tipu in the years before, and Cornwallis isn't at all happy. He's, in fact, fairly miffed because it takes the eye, uh, the ball, the eye away from the ball, which is to get Tipu in Chirangapatna. And so right through 1790, there is Coimbatore falls to the British, then there is an attack on Coimbatore by, uh, by, by, by Tipu's soldiers, and the British fall back. And uh, right through that entire one year of 1790, there's this goings and comings of various battles, and uh, skirmishes are occurring all over the place. But I think towards the end of 1790, early 1791... And by this point, uh, if I may just add, Cornwallis has actually come down from the capital of British India, which is Calcutta. He's come down to Madras to take personal command of the British yes. Army. Or as in those days, there was no British India, but you're right. He was no longer based at Fort William, right? Uh, but had moved base to, to Fort, Fort St. George. St. George. Okay. And he was Governor General, because he is, remember, Governor General of in Fort William. But he is now based in Madras, along with this guy, the, the general of the British armies, a guy called uh, Meadows, William Meadows, um, who is a very uh, a good strategist himself and a, and a good fighting man. So, um, And we'll, we'll see that they, these two gentlemen actually work well together in the latter part of the Third Anglo-Mysore War. So the first advance on Srirangapatna or Seringapatam is made in early 1791 um, by Cornwallis. But I think he's essentially stretched his supply lines so far that he has to fall back uh, without having taken Srirangapatna. Yeah, can I just uh, stop you there? But because before we get there, there's something else that happens early in 1791, which is that Bangalore falls. That's correct. In fact, it falls effectively on the recoil. Okay. So the first advance is made by Cornwallis and Meadows against Srirangapatna. When they realize they're not able to take it, mm -hmm. they fall back 
and capture Bangalore. Right. In effect. Because they need a toehold within the Mysore territory. And in uh, February, March of 1791, in the Battle of Bangalore, uh, Bangalore is finally captured. The Peta, or the fort area of Bangalore, is captured. And Tipu actually withdraws and sees the battle occurring from a distance okay. and uh, allows the garrison town of Bangalore to fall, the Peta of Bangalore to fall, in on the 5th of March, 1791. So uh, consider this. Uh, just a few months ago, we celebrated the 225th anniversary of, of that battle. 5th oh, wow. of March, 1791 yeah. is, uh, is now in 2016 is 225 years yeah. since yeah. the fall so of 225 Bangalore. years ago, the British conquered Bangalore for the that's first time. Right. So the Peta of Bangalore is secured and that's a huge toehold to get in the Mysore territory because it means that Cornwallis and Meadows are able to secure their supply lines from Madras, right. which is an, a very important uh, uh, aspect. Of course, they could get harried by the British attack, by sorry, by Tipu attacking from the south, from the direction of uh, Coimbatore. But uh, the fact that they're here in Bangalore uh, gives them this, uh, the ability to regroup uh, and, uh, you know, gain uh, strategic advantage in terms of making sure their supplies are all in order uh, before the final push on Shurangapatna itself. Uh, and so this brings us right into the sort of what we are, what, what are the sort of the meat of what we want to talk about, which is the, the siege and the battle of Nandidrug. Uh, so why don't we, so, the, so Bangalore falls, and so now uh, Cornwallis, like you said, he's got his supply lines from Madras to Bangalore sorted. Now his next move is to get his supply lines from Bangalore to Srirangapatna, which is the capital of Tipu Sultan. Now he needs to figure out how to, how to secure that. Uh, and this is where Nandidrug becomes so important. So I'll, I'll just leave it to you there. Sure, great, thank you. Um, you see, uh, Cornwallis um, had this nagging suspicion that if he were to attack directly from Bangalore on the road to Srirangapatna, what is effectively today the Bangalore-Mysore Highway, if you want to call it that, um, he felt that Tipu, if he were to withdraw from these territories, would follow a scorched earth policy. That is, Tipu would destroy every standing crop and destroy all the other means to support an army. So Cornwallis basically did this mopping up operation. He had to mop up the area around Bangalore to ensure that the supply lines were effectively secure. There is another strategic reason why he had to move slightly north of Bangalore in order to do two things. One is to obviously secure his flanks from any possible attack by Tipu's troops in the rear. Now, we must uh, uh, bear in mind that at the same point in time, the latter part of 1790, early 1791, the Nizam and his troops, or rather the troops of the, of the Nizam, are uh, besieging Tipu, a stronghold of Tipu, in a place called Guramkonda. Okay. Guramkonda is effectively in southern Andhra Pradesh today. It's uh, roughly about 200 kilometers north of Bangalore, northeast of Bangalore. And it is a hill fortress where the Tipu was, f and his troops rather, were fairly safely ensconced. So if Cornwallis did not secure Guramkonda and the other hill fortifications in the northeast of Tipu territory, there was a very strong possibility, very real and strong possibility, that if he moved further west in his advance to Srirangapatna, that these hill fortresses and the troops of Tipu uh, in those places would effectively be able to harry him in his rear and cause a lot of trouble. Now, the Nizam's troops were besieging Guramkonda, 
and had been besieging the place for over three months and hadn't been very successful at all in capturing the place. And so Cornwallis actually takes the view, a fairly dim view of the Nizam's troops saying, these guys are not doing their job. Um, let's go in and help him complete the task. So which that's the reason why um, uh, Cornwallis's armies move north of Bangalore. And one of the key hill fortresses north of Bangalore to capture it, with this objective in mind of ensuring no flank attack could happen is the hill fortress at Nandi, right? Uh, the Nandi Durga, as the locals called it, or as the British called it, Nandi Droog, right? And so that's the setting of the scene in the early, in the monsoon, really, of 1791. So this is uh, in June, July of 1791. Okay, so can you explain to us the sort of, uh, just describe the fortress to us at the time and what was, this, what was the ground reality like for the British troops that were coming from Bangalore to attack this fort? So Nandi, the hill, the Nandi Hills, is part of a broken chain of hills formed many millions of years ago. In fact, the Nandi Hill itself is a single monolith, which is over 300 million years old. And it's formed on top of the Deccan Plateau, at the southern end of the Deccan Plateau. It's not part of either the Western Ghats or the Eastern Ghats, but forms a broken chain of hills all the way from what is today Savandurga, um, or as the British called it, Savandrug, Nandi, and all the way actually up in an arc, almost like a semicircular arc, all the way up to Hampi. And so all these hill fortresses are perched on top of... Uh, uh, these mountains which suddenly seem to rise up from, from the plateau and offering, therefore, extremely strategically important places to control. Now, the fortress at, at Nandi was originally had been built many decades before as a brick and mud uh, fortress by the Marathas and had been reinforced and made, sorry, had been made into uh, stone and uh, uh, proper fortifications, proper stone fortifications by Haider and Tipu. The hill at Nandi has, uh, is a very unique hill. It's the tallest in the hill in that entire range. It is inaccessible on three sides, the southern, the eastern, and most of the north. And why is that? Because it's just one it's big It's one big, mon one big block of granite sticking out of the soil, okay. effectively, right? Rising up from the surrounding plateau to about 1,800 uh, uh, feet above uh, mean sea level, the surrounding plateau is roughly around 930. So it's a good strategic, well, a kilometer above almost. And inaccessible on three sides because of the sheer face of rock. And the only accessible side is on the northeast, uh, sorry, northwest corner, where it tapers into the, into the valley of Nandi, what is today the Nandi Valley, right? And um, Tipu had a, a garrison on top, uh, commanded by a very senior garrison commander by the name of Lutf Ali Beg. Right. And before we go any further, can you just mention a little bit about this gentleman? Because he seems to have had a pretty interesting history before this battle started. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you thought uh, uh, Cornwallis is the only man out to seek redemption for himself, Lutf Ali Beg is also in that similar uh, bucket. Now, several years before, Tipu had sent Lutf Ali Beg um, as an emissary to the Ottoman court in Constantinople, uh, today Istanbul, um, on the basis that he thought, why should I only reach out to the French, you know, in order to gain support? Because ultimately they are a European power, a Christian power, and who knows, the French and the British might get together at some point in time. So he thought strategically 
that the only other power that he could reach out to the overseas foreign power was one of his own, so to speak. So to reach out to the world's largest Muslim power at the time, which is the Ottoman Sultan. And Lutfali Beg had been sent as an emissary along with several others, but he didn't do a very good job, unfortunately, because he essentially did not give the Ottoman em emperor, um, his the Sultan, uh, the due credit that is uh, ought to be paid uh, to such a uh, important personage. After all, the Ottoman Sultan, remember, is effectively the caliph on earth, so to speak. And so he was sent back in dishonor, effectively, not having secured any help from the Ottomans. And Tipu kind of banished him, so to speak, said to go and take charge of the garrison at uh, Nandi and to defend it. And so there were about 200 troops of Tipu along with this man, very senior commander, much older than Cornwallis uh, or Tipu for that matter, probably in his 50s by that time, which if you remember in those days, most people probably did not live beyond their 40s. And so in the autumn, uh, the latter part of the, uh, the uh, monsoon and September or so, uh, Cornwallis's troops uh, laid siege to the bottom or the foot of Nandi Hills with a view to starving the garrison town or the top of their supplies. Now, the two villages in the, in the, in the, in the foothills, one called Sultan Pete, named in honor of the Sultan, and the other, which is the old village of Nandi itself, the name that gives, that, the one that gives its name to the hill, uh, were captured by the British. And they laid siege for a few weeks to the uh, to the top of the hill. They, they were all based in the in the foothills, with a view to um, well, effectively starving out the uh, the top of the garrison. So Cornwallis's troops um, sieging Nandi was led by two uh, uh, officers who I'd like to talk a little bit about. One was a major called Gaudi, Francis Gaudi, who went on to do fairly big things later on. He uh, if my memory serves me correct, he served in the Mauritius, in the British part of the Mauritius many years later. And he was effectively the uh, the, the actual commandant uh, of the troops in Nandi. But it was a, a significantly important uh, uh, battle that Cornwallis himself is reported to have spent a few days in the village of Nandi, in an encampment not far away from Nandi village as well as the governor of Madras, General Meadows, was also there. So it had a significant presence of all these senior British officers. So it's and not just some minor hill no, it, fort. No, it's quite no, significant no, it's strategically. Quite, quite very significant strategically. Um, so they uh, made the siege in, in August and September. And by uh, early, uh, early September, actually the middle of September, uh, the British realized that they could now uh, launch an attack on the top. Uh, apart from sieging the garrison, they also did. Uh, they also made sure that they cut roads into the sides of the hills through the use of elephants. Uh, reportedly, about 200 elephants were used to cut, uh, ro uh, you know, these pathways onto the sides of the road. On the northwest northwest ridge of Nandi Hills, the only accessible ridge uh, by means of which they could drag up guns to play on the walls. Um, in fact, the current uh, Chikbalapur to Durbalapur highway that runs through the gap between the Nandi Hill and its subsidiary hill called uh, Chandragiri, right next to it, is part of the, this road that the British cut in 1791. And in the forest land that exists on the northwest uh, side, uh, there is reportedly to be two other roads they, that they also cut. So they hauled their guns up uh, onto these ridges through the use of these roads. The northwest ridge of Nandi has these convenient 
little escarpments, if you want to call it that. I don't know what the correct technical word is, but essentially small ridges which afford the attacking troops some cover from the top of the hill because if they were seen, the guys at the top of the hill, the garrison would roll down rocks and oil and other kinds of uh, things to help prevent them climbing up. So in the middle of September, the preparations had all been laid. Uh, the garrison had been sufficiently uh, starved, so to speak, of, of materials and of ammunition. And uh, Cornwallis, uh, uh, who by that time had gone back to Bangalore, but Meadows um, uh, waited for the opportune time to uh, launch the attack. And that occurred on the night of the 18th uh, October, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, it was, it was 18th of October. And that occurred on the night of 18th October and the early morning of 19th October, a full moon night. So as a result, they had uh, clear uh, vision and obviously great clarity to launch the attack. And the attack opened through the use of guns, cannon, to lobby cannon onto the ramparts of the fort. Now, the hill fortifications on all sides of Nandi Hills was a single line of ramparts. In other words, the single wall of fort, except on the northwest side, the only side on which access could be made, uh, there was two lines of, garris, of of ramparts. In other words, there was an outer wall and then slightly set back inside was an inner wall. These walls, by the way, are still visible when you drive up to the top of Nandi Hills and you can clearly see, in fact, the, the, the modern road enters Nandi Hills on the top through the outer wall of the uh, garrison and there is an inner wall which is set back uh, a few hundred meters from there. And so the idea was to bombard the top of the ramparts, uh, create a breach or two, and then launch the attack with the men f uh, streaming through. And how effective was this as a tactic? Um, very good, because a breach was soon made. Actually, two breaches were made, both of which, incidentally, are still visible on the hills of Nandi. Uh, just as you enter the top of Nandi Hills today, to the left is the first breach, and to the right, near the parking lot, most people park <laughs> their cars there and don't see it, is actually the second breach. And uh, there is a story told that uh, as General Meadows and his troops and Gaudi were getting ready to storm, um, a ripple passed through the ranks and someone suggested that there is a mine on the top of the hill to which General Gaudi is supposed to have remarked, if there should be a mine, it must be a mine of gold. Okay. And uh, further laughter apparently ran through all the ranks. Um, by the way, all of this information that I'm telling you comes from a couple of British accounts of the capture of the top of Nandi Hills, contemporary British accounts from that capture, principally from two people, one by a guy called uh, Mark Wilkes, who was an officer, um, who has written quite extensively about this particular campaign, and the other was a chap called uh, Alexander Dirham, who was Deputy Adjut Adjutant General in the East India Company, and his description is a very long and uh, you know, a detailed description of the number of troops used, the type of officers, the amount of cannon, etc. The actual skirmish or the battle to capture the top lasted only a few hours because by the morning of 19th October, the British had control of the top. And uh, it was actually taken with fair, fairly little effort in terms of uh, life and, uh, and property. Only about 40 uh, soldiers on the British side that were killed or wounded and they captured the hill as a result. Uh, my suspicion is that uh, Lutfali Beg, seeing that the situation was uh, kind of against him, may have sued for peace and decided to uh, close the campaign at the top of the hill without any further loss of life and property. Um, I, I, the writing many years later, uh, the well-known historian uh, Dennis Forrest actually says 
that uh, uh, he passes very swiftly than they deserve over a series of feats of arms as audacious as any achieved by English troops in the 18th century. This was the capture one after another of the droogs or precipitous limestone rocks crowned with strong fortresses which punctuate the Mysore landscape. So actually um, the short description that he has and many others have other than Alexander Dirham actually does not tell you the full story of the uh, effort that was involved. Imagine cutting road with the use of elephants and then hauling gun up the tops of the hills to play on the walls in order to capture it. So it would have taken some effort and some doing, but the actual battle at the top of Nandi Drug only lasted uh, overnight. And uh, you mentioned here that Forrest mentions a few other Drugs as well. So what happens in the immediate aftermath of the fall of Nandidur? So the capture, there are two other, the two well-known ones that are captured is Krishnagiri. Mm -hmm. And the other Drug is, of course, Savandurga, or as the British called it, Savan Drug, which happened in December, a month or so, month, a couple of months after, after Nandi. And so the moment you've captured the tops of these hills in a terrain which is largely flat, which is punctuated by these limestone or granite rocks, you're able to gain strategic advantage and see into the distance and, you know, obviously gain strategic advantage, you know, to ensure that your flanks are not harried and your supply lines are secure. You know, my, my writing many years later, towards the end of the 19th century, this particular short account uh, of the Battle of Nandidrug is, I think, uh, very important and quite uh, instructive. This was written by Sir William, uh, sorry, by uh, uh, Sir Lewin Bentham Bowring, who was then the chief commissioner of Mysore. And he wrote, writes in his book, the struggle with the Muslim powers of the South, and I quote, the fortifications were extensive and the descent on all sides but one precipitous. The southwest angle formed a tremendous cliff, now called Tipu's Drop, from a tradition that prisoners were hurled over it by orders of the Sultan. An extremely steep and almost impracticable path leads down direct to the town beneath, that is Sultan Pete. But this was quite inaccessible to the troops, and the only side on which an approach could be made was strengthened by a double line of ramparts, the point I just made. A spirited defense was made by Lutf Ali Beg, the garrison commander, the com garrison using their guns with effect and rolling down huge masses of rock on the assailants. But notwithstanding the difficulty of dragging guns up the rugged hill to play on the walls and the want of cover, two breaches were made after an interval of three weeks. And on October 19, 1791, an assault was ordered and the fort was carried in the most gallant manner after a sharp struggle and with little loss. The splendid rock is now, owing to its salubrious climate, a favorite resort of the Europeans at Bangalore, unquote. <laughs> and this he was writing in, in what, 1893. Okay. After he retired as chief commissioner, talking about this and obviously drawing for his account from the accounts left contemporaneously by Wilkes and Dirham which are very good accounts in and of themselves, giving a lot of detail as to the kind of planning, the troops, and the number of animals and other, uh, you know, uh, armaments that were used and the various garrison commanders and the various uh, infantry regiments, etc. Very fascinating history, uh, military history about uh, that period of time. So by October, November, at the end of 1791, uh, Cornwallis had captured the Droogs, had ensured that his flanks were secure, had secured his supply lines and was safely ensconced in, in Bangalore, meaning that he was now ready to launch his attack on Shirangapatna itself. 
So let's see if we can get this straight here now. So what he's achieved or what the British Army has essentially achieved is they've opened up all of their supply and communications lines from Madras all the way now through to the heart of Mysore Kingdom in Sri Rangapatna. They've also been able to sort of access their, uh, sort of have open up communication lines with their allies, the Nizam of Hyderabad and the Marathas. Uh, and now, and very quickly, you know, we were talking about October of 1791, the siege of Nandidrug, which is the first of the three or four Drugs hill forts that are captured. Within a couple of months, in, uh, in February of 1792, you find Cornwallis and the British Army at the gates of Sri Rangapatna, and sort of a siege commences over there. Can you tell us what happened during this siege? So, um, the, as you rightly said, the Cornwallis and the East India Company Army moves west along with their Maratha allies, whom, by the way, Cornwallis calls a disorderly rabble <laughs> and not very creditable to the state of military discipline at Hyderabad. Sorry, this is the Nizam's troops. But as I said, he basically has some element of uh, suspicion about both the Marathas as well as the Nizam or the Hyderabadi forces. Um, so the column is harassed as he moves closer to Shirangapatna. And when the mass massive army reaches the plains just outside Shirangapatna, Tipu uses his famous rockets through the Kashun brigades to launch an attack. Now, uh, just think about it. Here you have people perhaps walking in the, in, in, in dusk, uh, you know, the army moving towards Shirangapatna, and suddenly they face this fire, you know, missile fire, uh, coming from uh, a place that they don't know. They don't know where the people are, the, their enemy that's fi firing against them. Most likely the enemy would have been a few kilometers away and launched these attacks and then quickly run away, almost like guerrilla tactics. And the army was obviously, uh, the British army is obviously, there is some amount of panic, but they soon are able to regroup because the problem with these rockets, perhaps even today, is that you can launch them, but without proper guidance systems, they might just fall helter-skelter and may not, they will have a dramatic immediate impact. But after you realize you're being attacked from out of the sky, you can actually, you keep an eye out and manage to dodge the the right. the the uh, uh, you know these these rockets. In fact, there's a famous painting which shows how these rockets uh, fly through the British columns and can effectively cut columns apart. But the British are able to regroup, and uh, uh, they again follow the the, the 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 policy or rather the tactic of besieging Shirangapatna. And uh, Tipu is uh, in 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 his fort and realizes that uh, his time has is up, and he sends out uh, feelers to to strike a deal, to strike a peace. Yeah. In so other just, words, uh, it isn't a military victory for Cornwallis, mm -hmm. but he's achieved his military objective of having Tipu sue for peace, right? right? And uh, and uh, so that is uh, effectively, I think, uh, by the end of February, early March, uh, there are now active negotiations to bring the Third Anglo-Mysore War to an end. Okay, so just to qu stop you there uh, really quickly, so just a couple of things that I want to touch upon. So one is that Sri Rangapatnam as a city is actually an island in the middle of the yeah. river Kaveri, right? And so that's so it it's pretty impregnable. So for the British to kind of, I wouldn't say successfully mount a siege because they had, don't quite invade the city, but for Tipu to be concerned enough that such a stronghold as his fort may be in serious danger that he sues right. for peace must go to show work the kind of show of force that Cornwallis has yes, brought. Yes, absolutely. Prepared. And it's a show of combined force, Maratha, uh, Nizam, Hyderabadi troops, as well as uh, Cornwallis' own army. Right. So yes, it is a massive show of force. Uh, and and I, th yeah. I think that prompts Tipu to sue for peace. So that, so that brings us to the 18th of March of 1792, when there's a peace treaty signed. Uh, and this peace treaty is not very kind to Tipu, is it? 
No, and uh, absolutely not. In fact, uh, Cornwallis extracts the most personal of all uh, conditions and allegiances, effectively. The, he effectively wants Tipu to have a personal interest in ensuring that the peace is kept and the terms are honored. So just before the treaty is signed, Tipu is forced to um, hand over his two sons, the heir to the throne, Fathedar, and the second son, as hostages to Tipu. So clearly, Tipu's three-year conflict uh, in the Third Anglo-Mysore War has worn him down. He's obviously running low on supplies, probably low on support and morale. And uh, clearly, with the French out of action, he doesn't really have immediate you know, uh, assistance that the, of the type that the British had in terms of armaments. So to actually hand over his two sons as hostages, and of course, there is that famous painting by Robert Hume, done a few years later, which shows... Cornwallis receiving the Tipu sons as hostages. They are, of course, treated very well. Um, Cornwallis is reported to have not wanted to take uh, the two sons as, as hostages, but uh, I think the real politic in those days, uh, I mean, and he, was a, he was a crafty man, and clearly, uh, you know, it was, it was his only way to secure Tipu's personal allegiance to keeping the peace. So, yes, the two sons were actually sent into captivity hostage and, and there's yeah. some other uh, there's some other interesting elements to this uh, to this sort of peace treaty if you will as well in addition to the sort of personal uh, sort of almost kidnap of his two sons there's the issue of a large uh, sort of monetary indemnity that needs to be paid to the British uh, and of course one my understanding is that that's part of the reason why the children are taken hostage is to secure as, as sort of like you know uh, for securing this kind of so the the, the 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 treaty of Shirangapatna of seventeen ninety two actually has this personal bond from mm. Triptipu. You're right; there are war reparations to be paid, as well as a division of the Mysore territory. Some going to Maratha, some going to uh, uh, the Nizam, um, and of course uh, a truncated Mysore left intact. Uh, with Tipu as the uh, the sultan, but he is in he is in a much smaller territory. He loses control of his ports, which is a very important thing, because that means that he's effectively boxed in on all sides by British territory, or at least by British allies' territory. Right. And so uh, he's uh, his his wings are clipped, in effect. And in fact, Cornwallis is reported to have said that he was. Uh, uh, he was again very suspicious of handing territory over to the Marathas and the and and the Nizam because uh, that would have been, in his words, a dangerous boon. But uh, he clearly sees the need to keep Tipu on the throne uh, for the reason that uh, he thinks that he can still, um, you know, keep him uh, quiet by all these various machinations, taking the sons away, getting reparations, etc. But uh, truth remains is that for many years later, Tipu does keep the peace because he has a personal bond involved. Tipu buys his sons back a few years later, 1795, I think, for about six lakhs, and that's a huge sum in those days, rupees. Right. And things. So, but it's a it's a price that he has to pay in order to secure their release. Now, immediately after the the battle and the conclusion of the Third Anglo-Mysore War, I think within a year or so, Cornwallis goes back to England. He demits office as Governor General. He goes back to obviously an England which is now seeing him as a in, in, in a glorious light because he's managed to secure southern India for the British. So his objective in terms of redemption for the loss of the American colonies is, is now complete. Okay. You know, the, the thing is, uh, he goes back, I think he becomes a Marcus. He's obviously, you know, becomes a wealthy man. Um, so the seven odd years that he was here from 1786 all the way to 1793 uh, marks uh, a period by which, at the end of which, clearly the British are now 
almost in complete control of southern india they've they've neutralized tipu their strongest indian enemy or at least local enemy the french are in disarray because of the uh, goings on in paris and then subsequently the whole french revolution erupts into carnage as we know you know and there's all the various communes and communities that take over and things are in a mess in france so by 1793 1994 the british are clearly in control of southern india there is of course the maratha power to be dealt with still as well as the nizam but both of them are in some treaty alliances and they're being checkmated through legal or political means if i can say rather than through the force of arms unlike tipu who now has to lie low and wait his turn so to speak to decide what next to do and uh, he does take up that turn pretty quickly isn't that so that is true within okay. a few years by the end of the decade 1799 uh he rises up again uh, in what was then to become the fourth and final anglo mysore war the personages have changed changed meadows is no longer there and of course cornwallis himself is no longer there he's been replaced by uh, a governor general by the name of lord mornington richard wellesley who has imperial ambitions for england or for for the for the for the company at least and that is to set up a colony effectively to set up an empire or a, well i say again those words are perhaps not right because empire only comes much later but he was clearly having imperial ambitions that the british should now control as a superior force uh southern indian territory again it's interesting that it happens in the same year 1799 that uh, napoleon is now making his appearance and staging his um rise to power in france because he's now seen as the strong man 1799 is actually i think when he becomes the first council of the french republic and so clearly he's the man who's going to be their enemy and they can sense that the the french are again regrouping and perhaps much more stronger than themselves that it may be a good time to get rid of the only remaining indian uh, threat so that they can then face the french uh, uh uh threat in europe uh, in a better way but clearly the securing of the indian uh, um, uh the indian territory southern indian territory now rests on a removal effectively of tipu which as we know happens in 1799 in the short and sharp fourth anglo mysore war he's killed in i think on the 4th or the 5th of may 1799 in battle right so there's a couple of things from here i think one of the things that we can see as a direct through line is that because of the sort of compromised position that tipu was in uh after the third anglo mysore war uh it becomes a sort of almost a little bit of a cakewalk in 1799 for the british to kind of siege serangapatnam serang serangapatnam and this time they actually do in breach the walls invade the city and kill tipu Absolutely. on the battlefield that i'm sure is a story for you to tell on another <laughs> occasion that is another Absolutely. fascinating story of intrigue of bravery of chivalry and i think uh, always to be borne in mind that this is a man tipu that is who died bravely in battle fighting till his last breath and that of course is the image that we know through various paintings mm-hmm. it's interesting that you mentioned the fourth anglo mysore war because uh, there is another very interesting little connect that happens there now richard wellesley had a younger brother by the name of arthur who is a bit of a buccaneer he was in his 20s and he was given command of uh, some troops uh, you know a uh, contingent or whatever you call it in military terms and is part of the action to capture shirangapatna in 1799 and he goes through surprisingly another village called sultan pet not the same sultan pet as nandi hills mm-hmm. but a much larger grove of trees in sultan pet where this is just outside shirangapatna where he's faced with these uh, uh, rockets again kashuns coming in and essentially the british are so completely faced by it that arthur wellesley 
retreats to his uh, to his mess uh, perhaps to steal himself with a few stiff drinks in order to <laughs> face the enemy but uh, and that's actually treason if you remember it but except that this man is the governor general's brother so what do we do we can't pick him up put him away against the nearest tree and shoot him he comes back in the morning fired up perhaps steeled with a couple of stiff drinks and launches the attack and then is able to secure and be part of the victory and he's actually seen along with his brother as one of the victorious british who helped secure that and the only yeah. reason i'm mentioning arthur wellesley is that 15 years later he is the duke of wellington fighting napoleon on the plains at waterloo right right and so the same buccaneer youngster arthur wellesley mm-hmm. as the duke of wellington defeats napoleon for the one reason that arthur wellesley always looked back as the indian campaign and the campaign against tipu and said i've learned two things from that hard night at sultanpet one never underestimate your enemy and two always be prepared for the unexpected which is things like rockets flying out from you so while he was no great tactician as compared to napoleon he manages to outflank and outbeat napoleon right. and of course he is the victor at waterloo mm-hmm. and then goes on to become british prime minister so there is a very strong indian connection that wellesley has the duke of wellington right has to india but uh, that of course as i said is another story to be told right and you were also mentioning uh, the rockets and there's an interesting american connection with uh, tipu's rockets as well am i right absolutely so as part i always say this actually when i do my walks in nandi uh, and talk about the historical the colonial part of it, the history of nandi you know the walk that i do actually traverses the main battleground of the third battle of the by the siege of nandi drug and we visit uh, some parts of these places which may well have been involved in the battle um and i say there are three seas that connect uh, nandi to uh, uh, to to the, the to the united states one of course is cornwallis the second is his good friend and a guy called archibald campbell who was governor of madras just before the war who sets the sage stage for this war and the third sea is a guy called congreve so william congreve now they spent rockets the british picked up from the battleground Congreve picked them up he was an officer with Cornwallis's army he picked them up and said hey this is something that i can study we must try and see if we can do as good as tipu's rocket so he essentially did what we all call today as research and development mm-hmm. and went back to the uk and improved and made the rockets much more effective and the rockets were used in the battle of 1812 against the americans what was effectively tipu built rockets developed through r&d by the british and used in the famous battle at bunker hill in 1812 where of course francis scott key mm-hmm. seeing these battle and seeing these rockets firing from one place to the other writes those immortal words into the us national anthem the rockets red glare right, right? and so that actually well if you want to say it is a little reference to tipu although modified by the british and clearly a reference to nandi because mm-hmm. it may well be uh, you know i mean i don't know i always use that in my little walks to show <laughs> that there is some larger um, uh, scheme being played out over here but you're right that is a very strong american connection in fact india lost out in the battle of research and development by you know effectively not investing no one was interested afterwards once the british had captured it it india became a colony in effect and all the wealth and all the rest that we know of was just taken from here we never really built on our indigenous rocket technology until until 21st century when right. we are now with the americans in space interesting so that actually i'm glad you did that because let's bring this all to today then let us so what are some of the lasting impacts of the events that we've been discussing in the last sort of 45 minutes to an hour uh today what do we can, what can we kind of uh what could someone who's looking back at this event see and see how they can be connected to it well first of all the third anglo mysore war as a precursor to the fourth and you know in its continuum 
is effectively the last truly ferocious battles that the British fought in India to secure their empire. Now, of course, you can say that the events of 1857 are also over there. But by the early 19th century, after the death of Tipu, uh, the British were firmly in control of southern India. Right? There were no Indian power or at least no domestic local power that could challenge them. And then shortly thereafter, within a few decades, they had neutralized both the Marathas as well as the Nizam. So by 1825, the British were clearly in control. The East India Company was clearly in control of India as an occupied territory. So the first real impact historically is that it marks a significant turn of events away from an Indian domestic power. The neutralization, the defeat of Tipu means that there is effectively no further contest against the British. I think that's an important one. Bringing it further, well, what happens is that the British have a very close connect to Mysore as a result. This is one of the few territories in India that they fought very hard for. And so there is, to some extent, an affinity to ensure that two things don't happen. A, that the Mysoreans, so to speak, don't rise up again. And B, to ensure that they are properly taken care of, or at least there is an interest to develop a local administration which is uh, as good as good can be. Because if you have a good administration and a good benevolent ruler, then the, the, the consequence, or at least the, the, the thinking, is that you won't have the people rise up in revolt again. Which is why after they got rid of Tipu, the British placed the Wadiyar king back onto the throne. He was a vassal, there's no doubt about that. And, but the British administration that was set up effectively, British-like administration, was so closely aligned to good governance, if you want to call it that, although his, some historians will disagree, saying that it was a colonial construct, so anything colonial is naturally opposed to domestic local interests. But the fact is that for the next 150 years, all the way up to independence, Mysore is held up as an ideal, well-run state with a benevolent king, an autocracy, no doubt about it, but an autocracy that works for the people. It's a state that was ruled directly by the British for 30 years, between 1831 and 1881. And so, which is why Bangalore, for example, has this unique status within the old princely state of Mysore as a cantonment town, what was called the civil and military station of Bangalore, mm -hmm. uh, came up as a result, direct result of the defeat of Tipu in 1799. And it's seen as a, a model of good governance, which is why you also have the chief commissioners of Mysore, effectively the governors of Mysore, General Sir Mark Cubbon, and Lewin Bentham Bowring and Cunningham, of course, all names that are now uh, recorded in our uh, roads, of names of various roads in Bangalore City. But uh, the idea was that you develop a local princely state that mimics the best of the British administration. You could argue that it did not take care of local interest in terms of addressing genuine local concerns, but it certainly helped the colonial state keep power all the way up to 1947. So that's a direct impact of the events of this time, that it led to the solid foundation of British political, economic, and administrative power in southern India, especially in the state of Mysore. Okay. And can you just give us, uh, as we're coming to uh, a wrap on this show, can you just give us a couple of lines on what you think about Tipu and his legacy uh, going forward? I know this is a little bit of a strained topic, so let me put you on the spot before we close the show. No, I'm glad you asked that question, and you're absolutely right. There are two very diametrically opposed views to, uh, on Tipu. One, that he was a tyrant, and there is certainly uh, historical evidence to suggest that he killed many people. The Mande Mayangars will even today say that they don't celebrate Dasara properly because they were subject to a massacre on Dasara Day. 
uh, Travancore, the people in Travancore don't regard Tipu very highly because he's seen as one who pillaged and looted. And so that does exist, that element. Having said that, it's not as if the other powers that he was facing, the Marathas, the Nizams, the British themselves or the French did not indulge in such acts of violence or arson or looting. It's all part of history, right? And they were, that, that is a recorded fact. But the fact remains, and I think this is very important to note, is that Tipu was one of the, perhaps the only man, the only Indian king in that whole era to have actually died on the battleground fighting the British, right? And actually taking a stand against the colonial power that emerged ultimately, right? And the British have grudging admiration for that. That fact that even though he was a real thorn in their flesh, they gave him grudging acknowledgement that he was a man worthy, a worthy opponent. Right. And... Uh, uh, that 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 issue still even comes all the way through to today. Even modern day Karnataka finds it difficult to deal with his legacy. He's seen as a man who stood up against the outsider. The Karnataka government would like us to believe that that must be celebrated only. But to celebrate only that and not recognize that there have been downsides is to ignore the fullness of history. And that's my point. It's very easy to bracket people as being good or bad. All of these people 200 years ago were elements, had elements of good, bad, and ugly in them. But that does not necessarily make them bandits, nor does it make them Heroes, saints, yeah. right? But somewhere, the, the truth, as in all of these things, must lie somewhere in between. And so if you have a view which says Tipu is a, is a real tyrant versus someone who is a benevolent man, the truth is really in between on that. Right, absolutely. One other thing that I always find very interesting about Tipu and his legacy is that he was one of the few princes or kings in India who was willing to play the sort of diplomatic game against the European powers by sending, you know, Lutfali Beg to the Ottomans or sending uh, an embassy to the French. He literally sent an embassy to Paris. You know, this is the kind of stuff that nobody else in India was thinking about on a global level. And I think that's one thing where he seemed to have an understanding of the larger picture of what was happening. To True, and you know, that, that global perspective, if you want to call it that, is I think most amply demonstrated in the fact that Tipu's strongest connection to that is his rocket technology. Right. And we should never, ever uh, discredit that because, uh, and, you know, in, in perhaps in honor of him, we have all of India's chief rocket scientists based in the state of Mysore, which is, I think, a great tribute to the man. That's, a, that's amazing. So I think we'll leave, leave the final words uh, to uh, uh, Lewin Bowring, who wrote, uh, uh, who's wrote a biography of Tipu. And this is the last line of his book. It says, as one stands in the tomb, that's Tipu's tomb, uh, words faintly uttered resound in hollow reverberations in the lofty dome, and one cannot help feeling a momentary compassion for a sovereign who, tyrant and usurper as he was, died a soldier's death. Well, Siddharth, thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming in. Uh, I'd like to mention to our listeners that Siddharth is the director of Nandi Valley Walks, which is uh, which does historical and uh, heritage tours around the Nandi Hills area, including to the famed battle site of Nandi Drug. So if you are in the Bangalore area, do check them out. You can email them at nandivalleywalks, all one word, at gmail.com, or look them up on facebook.com slash nandivalleywalks, N-A-N-D-I-V-A-L-L-E-Y-W-A-L-K-S. Siddharth, anything else you'd like to say? I'd just like to end by thanking you, Vijay. I think this is a great idea for you to do uh, documented history in the oral fashion um, and to bring, hopefully, the uh, uh, feeling or the, an association or affinity with history 
other than in the classroom and through boring books which only talks of events and dates i think um i hope that the the largest number of your listeners are our young citizens because if uh, truly if they do not appreciate history told in a dramatic fashion almost like on stage so to speak mm-hmm. uh, they will be condemned to repeat it and i don't think we want that wished on them so it's a great idea i think thank you so much for having me over and well, i look forward to many more of such things because indian history is not just about tipu and the others and there's i'm sure a lot more that we could oh, do no, together and a, i truly look forward to there's certainly a deep well to mine there and with that gracious pat on the back to me from you thank you very much sadat it's just left for me to say thank you to our listeners thank you to to sadat and uh, hopefully we'll catch you all again soon sometime take care bye bye so that's the end of this episode of the itihasa podcast thank you as always to the listeners of the show Keep listening to us on soundcloud.com/itihasapodcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at itihasapodcast and write to us at itihasapodcast@gmail.com. Itihasapodcast is spelled I T I H A S A P O D C A S T. The Itihasa Podcast is produced by Octavium Studios in Bangalore. Check us out at octavium.in. That's O C T A V I U M. dot in my thanks as well to pandit prakash sontake and the musicians at octavium for the wonderful theme music to the show thanks for listening my name is vijay rao and we'll be back with another episode soon take care